This episode of Beyond the Bottom Line is brought to you by the Program on Entrepreneurship at the Yale School of Management, where we're educating students for business and society. Welcome to this edition of Beyond the Bottom Line. Today, we are delighted to have Carol Savino, who is the co-founder and formerly chief product officer, chief technology officer, and chief operating officer at Game Changer. Carol has had a series of roles in the technology industry, both as a founder and as employee one, number one, and as an engineering lead. And Carol, can you just give us a bit of your background? Sure. Um, the, the, I'll try to tell the short, short version of the story instead of the long, long version. But I, I grew up an artist, uh, first and foremost. My parents were chemists who thought that their kids should be bohemian. Um, we moved to Vermont, and I was in painting classes instead of daycare. So that was my life until I was about 17. Took my SATs, decided I should go study something other than art, um, and then ended up in a startup a few years later with my degree in Japanese, which was not particularly useful, um, because my programming hobby turned out to be very profitable. Um, so I got into technology that way. I was a programmer for about a decade, or a programmer technologist specifically, and then kind of with much delight managed to move back toward the liberal arts side and bring back the art and the language as I moved into product. And then at my most recent company, I was you know, CEO of a two-person team, um, but, uh, but spent all of my time telling stories, which I love. So talk about that transition a little bit. You are a self-taught programmer. Mm-hmm. Um, this was back in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, so talk a little bit about how you kind of did that on the side, what you do continuously now to keep up to date, um, and how you think about lifelong learning in terms of your career goals and just being a good human being. Oh, wow. Those are great questions. <laughs> and a bunch of them. But uh, yeah, first of all, I've always been a learner. Like that, that was probably the thing I took, took to heart the most as a kid. Um, you know, my dad taught me quantum physics when I was 10 years old and also how to shoot because that's what you did in Vermont on a mountain. Um, and you know, my journey through technology has been a series of happy accidents. Um, so yeah, I grew up an artist, um, in Vermont and, uh, with a language degree ended up sort of found myself at a startup because uh, it paid better than the coffee shop I was working at. And it turned out that um, speaking a couple of Asian languages qualified me for maybe the CIA or the diplomatic corps, neither of which I wanted to do at the time. Um, and uh, being able to program qualified me to do something fun and, and make some money. So I never really looked back. I became really quickly addicted to the feeling of immediacy that comes with with shipping things and building stuff. Um, and there's also, um, and I've, I've spent a lot of my, my last years thinking about this, um, like constant tension between wanting to create things that are beautiful and perfect and awesome and, you know, be like, create something like Apple creates or something, or, you know, the iPhone, um, with the reality of startups which are poor and, and stuck on the ground trying to just sort of make it through the day. And I, I love that challenge. I love living in that space. Um, and it's it's what's driven me for the most part throughout my career. I think um, when I started programming, I loved just the idea of building things. I remember I had a phone call with my mom probably back in 2000, 2001, where I said, you know, I think I'm going to skip grad school and do this programming thing. She said, oh my God, are you going to still do art? She was very worried about it. And I said, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll probably still do art. Um, I said, well, do you want to get promoted and, become, and get into management or something? I said, absolutely not. 
I like to build things. That's what I'm here to do. Um, and so it was a, I thought about it as being a very reluctant progress. Um, I, I ended up the lead engineer at Hire One because I was you know, probably the most outspoken one. I don't know. Um, I joined DoubleClick right after that. And uh, I remember going from big fish in a very, very small pond to small fish in a very, very big pond. You know, from a 50-person company to a 2,000-person public company um, with a big engineering team. And two weeks into the job, my manager took me out to lunch and said, I think you should be running your team. And I said, I have no idea how to do that. Like, I don't even know how this company works yet. Why on earth do you think that I should be in charge? And he said, well, look around. There's the guy who hasn't bathed since last year. There's the one who doesn't speak English. Um, (laughs) There's the one who only comes in after two uh, you're the one who can speak English and communicate, and you know that makes you the leader. So I thought it was very funny, but I guess like the the least nerdy nerd ends up in charge pretty regularly in tech. Um, and but as I as I moved through it, what I ended up coming back to was I got addicted to building things that that had an impact on other people, and that drove me more and more to ask questions about not just how do we build this, but what are we building? Why are we building it this way? How does it feel for someone? How do people actually accomplish? Um, these beautiful, amazing products that actually make money. And that led me um, quickly from engineering into product, where I spent a few years. I actually went had to go out to Palo Alto to find someone to teach me product because I didn't feel I could find the right kind of product, product um, mentorship out here on the East Coast. Uh, learned a ton, came back and was obsessed with that for a couple of years. I found it the the most fun intellectual challenge since programming. It's like a you, know, you have the whole world as your input and you're trying to solve these big, big, hairy, fun problems. Um, and then while running Game Changer, we were you know, growing and building and we had a product that was doing really well in the market that was, that was loved and we were succeeding at at least to some degree the mission that I had, which was how do I figure out how to build great consumer products. Um, but at a certain point, it started, to, it started to feel like we were stuck. We couldn't do some of the things I knew that we should be able to do. And it was silly things. Like, I had a friend who kept asking me, hey, have you got push notifications in your app yet? And we were a consumer media company, and we didn't. Uh, years in. And it, it just felt silly. I said, why on earth? I, I'm, I'm in charge, right? So why haven't we done that? Because I know that we should. Um, which led me to start saying, start asking questions like, well, hey, how do we make decisions? Where do they come from? Well, they come from numbers. They come from you know our board. They come from our strategy in the market. They come from how we report on our revenue, uh, which you know I spent the next two years um, teaching myself <laughs> finance and marketing to understand the rest of the picture. And but always for me, it's it's that I I believe, or I believed at least initially that it was a matter of just focusing on the right things would get you the right outcomes. I then learned that, okay, the, the money actually matters a lot too. How the money comes into the business, how it's recorded, who's in charge of that influences the decisions that you make. And also that building um, amazing products requires a lot of money, <laughs> um, which, is, which keeps me in the venture-backed startup game. So talk a little bit about how you made that transition from CTO and co-founder at Game Changer into more of a product-based role. And where were you finding information to inform that path and educate yourself on what was going on in the market? What would you recommend to somebody who's trying to make that transition now? It's super, first of all, it was very, very, very hard. Um, hard to even say in hindsight how hard it was. But my experience was that as the company grew, it became obvious at various points that I no longer was scaling correctly and I was holding something back. So, that happened first with engineering, where I realized that 
You know, I was, I, I came up to an engineering culture that was very sort of alpha male nerdy. You can, you know, just write code for 17 hours a day and you can change the world kind of a, kind of a point of view. And that stopped working for me. And I remember having the realization that every time I wrote code, I was actually making the overall situation worse. I needed to go and let somebody else do it and be talking instead. So that was the beginning of me letting go of engineering. I remember you know, I had a, a brilliant manager in place who I coaxed and cajoled until he took the job of running engineering for me. Um, and then I sat there and said, okay, what do I do next? I don't know what, I, I don't know what I'm useful for. Maybe I've, out, maybe I've outlived my usefulness at the startup. And I think... This is where, I, and I've written about this, and I've thought about it a lot. I, I don't think everybody makes that jump. I don't think everybody even wants to make the jump that I made. Um, a lot of people in that situation, I think, if you really, if your if your love is programming and building software, then you probably should continue programming and building software. For me, it was a realization that somebody else could do that better than I could, and that it wasn't enough to keep me excited. Um, so you know. Giant career crisis, uh, one, identity crisis, no idea what I'm doing anymore. Uh, but I decided that, yeah, okay, product is the other thing that I do, right? I ran both engineering and design, and I had become kind of the product guy in the room. And I started to realize that I was an amateur at it. So I first went to my connections here in, in New York and said, okay, well, I know the guy who I, the first guy I knew who was good at product went and asked him. I started talking to people and reading books. And um, I then quickly heard about uh, a guy named Marty Kagan out, out on the West Coast who does this for a living. Silicon Valley Product Group. That's right. So it happened that one of our investors was hosting Marty Kagan for a, a whole full-day event, like boot camp, in Palo Alto. So I said yes to that, booked the flight, jumped on, jumped on the plane, got there, and was delighted. It was exactly what I needed. And a lot of the things that we were figuring out by trial and error, it was just, here's the quick validation of, yes, that's right. I remember being really proud of myself because at one point, one of the biggest things Marty was pounding on at this, this event was um, everyone needs to go and hire some UX designers, at least one. And there was a discussion of, well, what are UX designers? And then it was, so at some point I said, okay, raise your hand if you have any of these already. And I raised my hand. He said, how many do you have? I said, six. And the rest of the people, there are like 12 other companies, they all turned and started at me and people started saying, can I have some of them? Where did you get them? Um, You're like, no. <laughs> no, you absolutely advantage. can't you. have them. No, they were really hard <laughs> one. They're really, really good. We pay them a lot of money. They're amazing. Um, but I felt good. I felt like we were at least on the right track. And I kept digging into product. And But sure enough, about you know two years into running product, I had my head of engineering walk into my office and say, you're now the bottleneck again. There's a line out your door every day. People need decisions from you on this and that. And they have to show you this and this thing and that thing and that thing. And it's it's slowing us down. I said, okay, it's time to, it's time to let this one go too. Um, so I initially hired, or I turned an engineer into a product manager and had a junior person working for me while I searched for a real grown-up. Hired a phenomenally smart guy who, one weekend I realized that he had, was completely doing my job. And I was like, this is amazing. I've hired the best person. He's so good. Now what do I do? <laughs> no, I really don't want to do it because I saw the title chief product officer and I had a vice president of engineering and a vice president of product working for me. And people would actually come my office and say, so what do you do again? And I got really tired of this question. Um, and I sort of was like, well, I manage a bunch of people, but I kind of was unsure myself. I don't know what to do. Um, and it, which started another six-month-long process, uh, my co-founder Ted and I um, talking about what my job was going to be. <laughs> and I wasn't satisfied with being a manager at the time. I said, um, I don't think that fills my day. I think that I can manage you know, 
basically three people and three reports. They're all very good senior people. I can manage them. It doesn't take all day to do that. So what am I doing with the rest of my time? I think I can, I can contribute more than that. And built myself a, a chief operating officer role. But it was also a controversial move because, at least according to what most people think a chief operating, chief operating officer's job is, I was not really qualified for it. Don't have the MBA, not a finance guy, not, I mean, I'm somewhat, somewhat of a checklist person, but not in the way that real COOs are. And Ted came to start calling me, um, his, his phrase was, uh, if most COOs make sure the trains run on time, you periodically blow up the train and build a new one. But the net effect is pretty much similar. So that's how I approached it. Was I, I took my sort of engineering process background and applied that to the company as a whole. I said, how do I fix the system? How do I make sure that it works right? Um, and, and, and I learned a lot. I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, but it was very, very challenging. And it was um, one of the toughest moments in my career because I, I kind of was letting go of the last thing that I had been an expert in. Like at one point, I had been a designer. At one point, I had been an engineer. I had been the head of product since the start of the company. And so when I let go of all of those roles, it was a really strange moment. Um, I'm talking a lot, but in hindsight, it was it led to the two best years of my career at the time. Um, I had such amazing people working for me and got to experience what it's like to have a, a top-flight operational team in place, and I got to learn all day long, which is what I love. So tell me, what exactly were you doing on a daily basis? Oh, my gosh. Well, at the beginning, I was just trying to learn things. I literally would pick up books on marketing and finance. I had a really great head of finance who would sit me on the whiteboard. I remember one day he taught me working cash flow, right, uh, on a whiteboard. And we would go over spreadsheets together and understand how they worked. And he he was the person who helped me understand the, like the, the financial side of the growth problem we were facing. Um, so I took a lot of advantage of the team around me. That was, I think, the greatest privilege of being in a role like that is the the chance to to kind of learn from a bunch of experts. So I found it so much fun to get to learn that way. Um, but the projects I ended up taking on, and I've often said they're some of the weirdest things I ever did. I spent I spent a year changing a couple of metrics that we use to track progress, and. It blew my mind that it was that hard. We were a 50-person company, not that big. Um, but I had to get alignment from a line engineer all the way to our board on this complete shift in perspective. So can you deep dive a little bit into that shift in perspective? Yeah, so we were, we were trying to move from what I would describe as kind of a transactional model to an engagement-driven model. Um, and... You know, so we were used to measuring how many teams signed up with us and how many of those scored a game, how many games got scored. And I was trying to move us to how many people, you know, coaches are signing up, um, how long are they staying, how engaged are they with the product, right? And not just looking at, for instance, counting our subscriptions, but looking at the engagement level of our subscribers, right? So it's sort of obvious in hindsight, but without looking at, engagement, you're missing the leading indicator for basically every piece of downstream behavior that comes from it. And um, I, did, I did that in combination with a pricing change, which was also brutally hard. The math part was actually really easy. It was who was your pricing expert again? Because I know and you Stephen Plume, who was very, very good. Um, but the, the math itself, not so hard. The research took a few weeks to do. The 
the work of selling the idea to the company and to the board and making the commitment to do something that big, it did dramatic things to our revenue model. Like, and at one point, um, I mean, I, I built an entirely new, like literal Excel model for the business, um, to demonstrate what the price change would do. We had a, had a finance at the time, but he was busy working on other things. I said, well, look, somebody has to model this out because I need to figure out if it's going to really work. Um, so I kind of had to build like a whole rogue team, like, you know, this whole new revenue angle. Um, and it required that we, the pricing change, um, what we were effectively doing was going to cause a shift from uh, yearly subscribers to monthly subscribers, which meant it was going to cause a drop in cash flow at peak times. But our theory was that monthly subscribers at a slightly higher price point were going to end up returning over time much higher lifetime value. Um, so on paper, it made really great sense. In reality, say the board, like, we're going to watch our revenue year over year plummet for the next three months, and you're going to have to trust me that it's coming back, was terrifying. Um, and it wasn't until after I left that I finally saw it really come to fruition, and it did. Like we saw, the, you know, our growth expectations just sort of went out, got out of control after a while because the the effect it did work. It did work. My subscriptions are amazing. Uh, people never turn them off. It's kind of scary. So talk a little bit about your and Ted's decision to sell the company and the process to the degree that you can talk about it publicly. Sure. Um, and parts of it I can't, but it was, I think letting go of a company is got to be the hardest decision a founder ever makes. Right. And, and I think it's at least it's a good outcome if you're letting go for money <laughs> um, versus letting go because it just doesn't work. And I've just, just done both of those things in recent history. So it's very difficult because, you know, in, in the case that where you are actually, you have succeeded to some degree, where you have a business that operates, that makes money, you have a team that works, you have a system that works, right? You have happy customers and happy people. Um, and then you're taking something that, you know, that was a labor of, it was eight years of work. Uh, the culture alone was, I think both Ted and I talk about that team and that culture as the achievement like the thing we're most proud of. And effectively, we were giving it to somebody else and hoping they didn't totally ruin it. And of course, they do over time, right? And they did. Uh, we managed to hold out for a year year or two post-acquisition of really doing that. But, that. but that made it very, very difficult. At the same time, I think that the decision to sell ends up, it's like a lot of things where it arrives at your door one day and you realize it's there, right? We were facing um, revenue growth challenges that we couldn't figure out how to crack. Um, we, when we did find a credible plan for, for changing our growth pattern and, and getting back to sort of an explosive company that's you know, worth the kind of valuations we wanted to get to, it cost too much. We couldn't, we couldn't justify raising the money we needed to go after that plan. Um, and we tried. We, we maybe could have, but we, had, we tried and we, we really couldn't find someone willing to put that money in. Um, and even if we'd been able to raise it, it would have been so dilutive to the company that um, you know, our board, which was full of some very, very smart, experienced people, which was wonderful, told us, you need to go out right now before you think about raising this much money and figure out what the company's worth. Because 
and then do the math. And if you still think raising it's a good idea and you're ready to do the, the night, whatever it is, the three, four, five year effort it takes to then execute that plan, by all means do it, but look at the numbers first. And sure enough that the numbers said was, you know, we're worth X right now. And I think the selling price money is not supposed to actually talk about, but um, worth X right now, we need to be worth like five times that in the next couple of years to make the dilution worthwhile. And we looked at that and said, that's just such a, such a high hurdle, such a high hurdle. Um, and so it just, it, at some point it became a math problem. It was like, this is, we probably just can't do the financing. Um, and then of course it was full of all kinds of crazy drama. It, it was, you know, we, we thought we had buyers, they all vanished. You know, we thought we were going to do a big private equity deal and do a, and this big merger in the, in the works two different times and they all vanished. We finally decided that forget VCs and forget selling. We're just going to get profitable and do it and do it ourselves. We cut staff, went through a big budgeting process. It was brutally painful. Laid people off, and then right after that, the person who bought us showed up. Right, Dick Sporting Goods called up and said, "Hey, how are things?" <laughs> They're um, great. <laughs> we're like, great. Yeah, you know what? We're you know never been better. Never been better. By the way, we have an offer if someone wants to buy the company. Oh, you do? And then all of a sudden, it it it, it, it happened. Um, and it probably took six months after that, but it happened very quickly. The deal started to come together. And it made a lot of sense at the time. They were willing to pay um, a very fair price because we fit their strategic direction to a T. Um, you know, they, we had a deep cultural connection with their team. They came in and said, oh, this is exactly what we wanted. We wanted to figure out how do you build consumer products like this, we have a deep customer first culture. You have a deep customer first culture. What we want is, in fact, this culture. We want this team of people here who you figure out how to make work like this, which sounded just perfect. So they said, We won't mess it up. We want it exactly as it is. We just want you guys to come work here. We'll give you the money to be able to, do, to fund your wildest dreams. And we're like, This is perfect. It's amazing. It's awesome. We can still do it. Um, that delusion lasted, you know, a few months into the deal, probably. <laughs> uh, and, and we kept, we were optimistic early on, but I think. Politics inside of big corporations is is brutal, especially if you're a tiny company and the, your buyers, you know, they were literally a thousand times our size. So you move on after three months. You have this itch with this new product. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that process and yeah. failure? And failure. Um, learning. Yeah, so... Had a really had a moment that felt like the beginning of something really really big. Um, uh, a longtime partner or longtime friend of mine who I'd worked with at Game Changer named Chris and I were talking about this concept of sort of social scheduling and social calendaring and personal calendars. And it was something that Chris had spent years thinking about himself. He'd tried a couple of times to build products in the space. And what I had was sort of a justification for trying again a different way. Um, what I saw was that the technology behind calendars on, on mobile devices was super old and needed a refresh, and there was a chance to rebuild the fundamentals and make something that was consumer-grade and would allow us to work on this sort of social connection problem. Um, we were both very, very excited about it. I think it was probably maybe two months in that our first prototype completely bombed. We first tried to serve high-productivity nerds um, and we realized that they didn't have a real problem. We learned, as I think Chris had this framework, he, I think it's a Facebook thing, but it was like, is the problem, um, 
is it a, it, the questions were, is it a people problem? It is a real problem. So this one, we sort of failed the real test. It's a, it's a, it's a problem in that people like to complain about it, but it's not a real problem in that they don't really need it solved. So our solution was received as, oh, that's more complicated than the problem was to begin with. I'm okay with my Google Calendar as is. Thank you very much. Um, and that hurt a lot, uh, especially like as a first-time CEO, I felt like it was my idea that was just totally invalidated, and therefore so was my self-worth and, and reason <laughs> to exist. Um, as it turns out, that's not the case. Turns out so. not the case. I spent about 24 hours feeling that way. Um, but I, I pat myself on the back because we were having this discussion and we were seeing the, the results come in. And Chris, you know, we can spend a couple more weeks and try the prototype this one. I said, you know what? No, we need to not waste any more time. This hurts, but we need to kill this now and start moving forward because there is something else to do here. And this just isn't it. Um, so take two, we took what we had learned and, you know, my secrets, I have two secrets to startups, right? Such as they are. One is talk to customers. The other one is just sort of like never give up. Um, and uh, so we'd been talking to customers a lot and we had plenty of ideas for things they did want and had learned a bunch of surprising things about especially how younger people were managing their time and their social relationships. And so we decided to go and build something that was, we said, forget the calendar and we built basically a calendar. But it was a calendar built... Um, Rather than trying to model it on today's calendar software, we were we were modeling it like completely off of like the consumer behavior first and working backward. So we had something that felt very odd and weird. It was sort of like a kind of a personal relationship thing, kind of a calendar, but it was like your little social hub, your way to figure out who to talk to and keep up with people. Um, felt fantastic. We start we we arrived there, and then shortly after, the wave broke over Facebook with all of you know, Zuckerberg testifying before Congress and this big public media backlash against social media. And we were so excited about it because we had been we were right there looking at it and saying we think we know how to fix this. Like we've been we've spent a year trying to figure this out. And I think we have at least how to fix it. This is a big deal. We are in the exact right place at the exact right time. The market is gigantic, and the world just woke up. And we were so excited. Um, you know, fast forward nine months, and we're saying, okay, so the product didn't work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we did a really good job deluding ourselves for yeah. a few months. Well, and the, the thing that, that tricked us for a while was that when we would talk about what we had learned and the mission and what we were trying to accomplish with it, it was like nothing I'd ever pitched to anybody. People would just jump. I had, I had people lining up to work at the company that I didn't have money to pay. And I was like, this has got to be a thing. Like, I just need to find someone to fund this because I've never seen people be so excited about working on a problem. I've never seen something resonate so deeply. I spent all my time doing, like, Facebook ad tests and, and like, just seeing people, like, astonishing click rates. People really want this problem solved. So where we failed, we didn't actually solve it. <laughs> <laughs> that felt like the easy part. And it Let was alone not. figure out how to monetize it. Yeah, well... <laughs> The monetization part, we were happy to kick down the road um, for the scale of it. But we never actually solved the problem. And it felt like we were getting there little by little and making progress towards something, but it wasn't fast enough. And um, yeah, it was really tough. We kind of had to just at some point realize that we were out of money and out of time. Um, so speaking of being out of time, we are out of time. Kirill has another idea that he's kicking around, but I think we're going to wait until he comes back for him to reveal my what first that ever is. stealth idea. Um, but before we close this out for the day, uh, top book that you're giving as a birthday present this year. Oh, wow. 
Well, the, the book that's been on my mind today, which is one of my favorite book to give to everybody right now, is called Cultural Strategy. And yes, it's a business book. Um, it's on brand differentiation and like became my Bible for building like consumer movements, like really interesting stuff. Like all I read is like psychology and marketing these days. Great. Excellent. Kirill, thank you so much for joining us for the class, for joining us for the podcast. And we look forward to having you back to talk about what is next. Yay. Thanks for having me.